This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 18th, 2021. In today's episode, we examine the concerns of asset owners, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others whose actions affect, well, all of us. MSCI's recent Global Institutional Investor Survey analyzed responses from 200 of these investors who collectively manage close to $18 trillion. While the survey delves into a number of issues, today we're going to look at climate, private assets, the move toward in-house asset management, and data and technology, all issues that are on the rise. To sort through it all, we're joined by industry veterans who know the asset owner organizations very well, though they do come at them from different perspectives. So my name is Bear Pettit. I'm president of MSCI, and I run all the operating functions at the firm. So pretty much everything bar legal, HR, and um, our general counsel report to me at MSCI. And? I am Roger Irwin. I am in my day job, I'm going to say, uh, Global Head of Investment Content at Willis Towers Watson. So that's a job that keeps me busy with the asset owners of the world who are all very stretched at the moment for various reasons. We can go into that. But I also have a kind of long-term relationship doing advisory work for MSCI. So that relationship has been really interesting journey and uh, I kind of have some insight that I can share on this insights paper, particularly. We'll get to those insights, but first, we're going to take a step back because my guess is that more than a few of you listening are asking yourselves, asset owner? What exactly do you mean by that? First of all, you know, within this category, there are a broad range of different types. And so it's very uh, tricky to lump them all together. Whether they're acting on behalf of a a government or a group of universities or what have you, the the key point is uh, it's the centralized decision making around a large pool of capital that makes them interesting because a relatively small number of people in those institutions can have you know, with clearly risk oversight and constraints and all of those things, but nonetheless can have a, you know, a fairly outsized impact. Can we get a bit more specific? Yes. So asset owners are a very well-defined group to some people in the world, but it's quite subtle because you have to see them in categories. So pension funds, you've got public pension funds, you've got uh, corporate pension funds, you've, you've got defined contribution pension funds. You've got sovereign wealth funds, you've got insurance assets, and you've got endowments and foundations. If I called out six, that, that's probably correct. But essentially, these organizations are ultimately the, kind of the most influential in the investment world at the moment, even though they have far smaller staff. Uh, they have a bigger sway on how the investment industry is changing. And hence, the survey is is interesting because if you say that 31% of plans uh, over 200 billion think that climate is the most important issue facing them, then likely they're going to do something about it. And, and that in of itself will almost certainly influence capital markets. 
It struck me that both Bear and Roger mentioned how asset owner organizations were relatively small. I asked Roger if he could put that into context. Help us with relative size here, maybe, say compared to, oh, I don't know, maybe asset management firms. If you, if you think about the, the relative scale in terms of frontline investment professionals, roughly speaking, across the world, there are six times more um, people who work for asset management organizations as who work for asset owner organizations. A kind of large asset owner may well be two or 300 people uh, working on the investment challenge, whereas a large asset manager, you're talking about um, several thousand people working on the investment mm. challenge. Um, so, so that's a reality check on how far the asset owners have developed their internal capability because, of course, the asset owners would argue when you actually look out there, they've got all the resources they need because they have access to the whole of the investment management industry. All those, those different firms from BlackRock, the biggest, down to organizations that uh, you know, may well be boutiques. Now that we've got the lay of the land, let's turn back to Bear's example of the sway that asset owners can have. When he brings up a focus on climate, it's not just a hypothetical example. ESG and climate came up time and again in one form or another across regions and also with asset owners of different sizes. Now, on our last episode, we spoke about how significantly climate change is affecting investors generally. But given the influence asset owners have, we want to spend some time examining how they are thinking about it. Climate change also happens to be a good place to dive in because it brings out some of the more surprising findings from the survey. We'll start with Bear when we asked what stood out for him as he read through the survey results. Well, look, I guess the element that was striking, and, and this is, uh, you know, it's not a huge sample size, but it's 200, you know, major institutions across the world, is that there are some significant variance and emphasis based on uh, both the geography of these investors and their size. So, you know, just maybe to pick out a, a nugget that kind of caught my eye, Amongst the very large plans, 31% climate change or climate risk was the most important issue they were facing. When you go down to the smaller plans, which is below 25 billion, which are still, in our case, fairly decent-sized plans, that, uh, that concern on climate change or climate risk was only ranked 11%, uh, you know, amongst them. So, and, the, and in fact... The major concern of small plans, 26% of them, was market volatility or market uncertainty. And in turn, that concern for large plans was only 12%. So with some rounding error, you know, that the emphasis of those two categories from the biggest plans to the smaller ones in our survey was almost reversed. Another element that I was struck by was more from a geographical point of view. The region where climate change and, and the increasing uh, importance of ESG were ranked first and second priority was the Americas. Uh, and in turn, climate change appeared as the third priority in EMEA and in Asia Pacific. So it's still up there for sure. It's the third priority on a much longer list. It is surprising compared to Europe. 
Any any thoughts on what's behind that? I, I don't want to put excess uh, weight on this to a degree because the let's say this the space between the second priority and the third is call it roughly one's roughly nineteen twenty percent and the other's fourteen percent. So it's not a dramatic gap. It may well be that that it reflects. The fact that Europe already or EMEA already was out more ahead of this, um, you know, it could it could, in fact, be some element of, you know, specific example influence. Um, But my but my my bias is to believe that this topic has really become way more front and central in the Americas in the last year. And that with the change of administration, you know, that that emphasis will only increase, you know, as we've seen, um, the Biden administration issued quite a number of executive orders related to ESG and climate in in the very first weeks. The first point you mentioned about Size, however, that that really is striking, especially since, as you mentioned, it's it's almost completely polar opposite, large to small. I'm wondering if that's coming from is that perhaps more of a operational response or yeah. are larger firms? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, look, I think you're on to something there. Um, you know, my bias is that the larger plans have perhaps at the margin, well, they have better infrastructure. They likely have or are better staffed uh, in in areas, uh, you know, across the investment process, in risk management, etc. Uh, and um, and so I think it's likely that the smaller plans feel a bit more sort of acutely sensitive you know, to market volatility. What is becoming the case is that um, with the development of the the Paris uh, alignment strategies and basically really making sure that portfolios are, are Paris aligned and have the capability to at some stage uh, get to net zero, that particular proposition has cascaded into the biggest funds and hasn't yet filtered through uh, the entirety of the asset owner spectrum. And the reason for that is that the biggest funds are easier to engage uh, directly on it and have a bigger profile. And I think this is one of those kind of filtering processes that exists where nation states have been doing things on, on climate change ambition, and they're asking for the private sector to play their appropriate part, and they're doing so by asking the biggest funds first. It's obviously been on their agenda from a risk management point of view, but it's also now starting to to play a role in their kind of overall framing of what the fund is there to do. It's more uh, in keeping with their wider stakeholder responsibilities as well, and what's called their license to operate. Now, smaller funds just haven't had the same pressure and smaller funds are more nervous about markets. And you could say that that is reflective of the fact that they haven't got the same degree of investment resources that those big funds have. Those big funds are probably more at ease with the fact that markets are volatile and they're, they're in the program on that, as it were, whereas the smaller funds are, are more nervous that they haven't got 
their investment results uh, fully in control because of the volatility of investment markets. Whether the issue is climate, managing volatility, or even keeping the lights not just on, but shining bright through a global pandemic, the survey highlighted the importance of data and having the technology in place to collect it, parse it, and this is the part keeping folks up at night, putting it to work effectively on the investment side of the house. And to do all of this, as the scope and sources of the data continue to increase. One example that came up in our survey was an in-house private equity team looking into a chain of fitness centers. They would likely need to analyze long-term fitness trends, demographics, and even the rate at which expensive fitness equipment will need to be replaced. But they also need to look at new data sets, such as satellite imagery or even data from wearable fitness devices. All of this data can be costly, and difficult to assess when it comes to cost-benefit questions. The point is, as in every industry, and every aspect of life these days, it's show me the tech. I think that these organizations, asset owners, are coming to, to terms with the fact that, that they have to um, master the technologies that will make a difference to their futures. And so from that point of view, that hasn't been easy for them in the past. I think... Um, the platforms they've run, the problems with data that they've had, the data to manage their portfolios efficiently and integrate all the different technologies of multiple pieces of the puzzle, as it were. They've been bolting these things together. They're still running a lot of spreadsheets. They haven't necessarily got all the latest technology um, in place to be um, efficient for the next three to five years. On the other hand, when COVID lockdowns hit, you might have expected more hiatus around um, the idea that workforce that did turn up at the office was actually working from home using Zoom communication, video communication. It actually shows that an intellectual capital business like this can adapt quite quickly with the benefit of technology. So if we'd worked on the technology of five or 10 years ago, this would have been a disaster in my view. But in practice, the operating model of these organizations was surprisingly robust. And so from that point of view, nothing fell over. And therefore, these organizations were able to pick up a rather changed landscape for how they can be successful into the future. And they have indeed embraced technology more successfully as a result of that. So from that point of view, some of the future is really to do with how technology will play a bigger part in their operating model in future. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I do recall very clearly that, in fact, it was U.S. investors who were most convinced that technology would have a you know fairly significant uh, impact on what they do in the years ahead because I do think that still at the margin that's uh, you know where we've seen a lot of these changes uh, being um, brought into play so look I I think that the role of technology will both <laughs> as, as it normally is be more dramatic than we expect in some areas and less dramatic than we than we expect in others. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that the role of technology will significantly uh, enable efficiency at MSCI, 
uh, we one of the things we do is create prepayment models um, for asset-backed securities, which is a very complex area of financial modeling, uh, uh, you know, with, and this is again with rounding error, but to uh, readjust these models to changing prepayment data coming in from millions of homeowners in the U.S. as an example, used to take various experts, you know, months to do that. With machine learning and AI, you know, elements of that work can be, once you do the programming, obviously, and once you've, you've trained the machine, can be done in like 10 minutes. Bear and I went on to discuss the benefits of machine learning and whether they extend beyond the idea of machines performing human tasks more quickly, or if technology was actually offering more, even unlocking the door to insights we mere humans may otherwise miss. The machine-driven method is is marginally more accurate. You know, you know, not you know. I don't know. It depends what you say. Marginal. It is more accurate, but it's not dramatically different. It doesn't give you a different outcome, but it's more accurate, and for sure, it's more efficient and timely. And so, I think it will. While you know, machines and and we at MSCI intend to continue to build those machines. <laughs> so I'm definitely a believer in that part of it. The machines will, I think, be able to tell you more and more quickly and accurately the degree to which certain types of events are anomalous in view of previous inputs or previous constraints. But there are other things in those categories which are more than just efficiencies. They're they're uncovering patterns that are otherwise not seen. And I also think it will drive the user experience. You know, with uh, consumer technology, there is enormous amounts of effort put into the, the the look of feel and the ease of use. And generally, of course, you know the thing needs to do what it says on the box. You know, if you if it's if it's a phone, people want to make a phone call. Well, at least someone over thirty wants to make a phone call. <laughs> my my sixteen year old son does not want to make a phone call. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. But anyway, you know. But 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 other than that, it's it's heavily focused on the attractiveness of the experience. Whereas you know, the more complex stuff in financial markets. You know, typically, the, the, the more complex you get, the worse the user experience <laughs> to a degree, whether it's, you know, uh, quants programming their own things or some highly sophisticated tools. One area that I think will be, you know, which I think there's a lot of opportunity is to make the user experience of sophisticated financial technology much more attractive. Well, sure, right, because those same people, or even your 16-year-old son or my 13-year-old daughter, they're going to grow up, they're going to be in the workplace. If they were to get a job, even in a very advanced uh, financial services type of processing, decision-making, they have grown up coming to expect that it's also going to be attractive and easy to use. Yep, for sure. So data and accessing data, that seems to be the themes that we're we're coming to here, and we're definitely in the survey. I I want to stick with that, but shift a little bit into the idea of private assets. And as investors continue, we've been talking at MSCI for a while now, to migrate more toward private assets, real estate, 
but also private equity, private debt. Um, when it comes to the data here, this has typically been difficult to get to because it's not a very transparent market, to say the least. How, how can investors deal with that? So I think that there are very there's generally a trend over time for in financial markets for there to be more transparency. Bloomberg brought enormous amounts of transparency to global fixed income markets in the late '80s, early into the early '90s, right? So so that that's an example of a market where sure you could make comparisons and there were people who were sophisticated who could do it. But, you know, suddenly, if you had a Bloomberg terminal, everybody could do it. But there's also the private debt markets themselves. So there's private debt markets, private equity, um, infrastructure, some aspects of real estate. So I think in those areas, the elements that are taken for granted in terms of transparency in public markets, notably related to pricing and valuation, are clearly, uh, you know, not so clear. Um, and and there aren't a lot of common standards for making those judgments. Now, in turn, again, depending a little bit on the on the data source and the and the and, and the time horizon, uh, strong cases have been made for you know for the outperformance of those markets precisely because they have illiquid um, and maybe even slightly less transparent characteristics. But you know, long story short. We think that we're at an inflection point here where private markets transparency will certainly be on the rise. And our belief is that the need for transparency in private assets will accelerate quite dramatically, likely in the next, I would say, call it, it's hard to say exact amount of time, but call it the next three to five years. In the midst of these shifts, asset owners are also working to find the right balance between internal and external asset management. The survey found that just over one-fourth of those who manage more than $200 billion, those with the most freedom to choose, said that finding this balance was second only to asset allocation when it came to achieving what they would define as investment excellence. This highlights not only the importance of this issue, but also the divide between the largest and smallest players that we spoke about earlier in the program. The largest asset owners have taken a lot more of portfolio management and strategy decisions into their own organization. So they have teams of people working uh, for them that uh, they've made themselves look a bit like asset managers in practice. And the very largest asset owners, you know, true, truly do look like an asset manager uh, from through, through that lens. Now, what are the, the drivers? They have been a lot really about getting more control. So that does represent the idea that if their core delivery is investment performance, why would you outsource all of that, all of that to outside asset managers when you could actually influence it and control it better if you have your own people? These organizations started out asset rich, time poor but they've been able to put resources to work in this area, their own teams and their own organizational structures. And they've been able to control things better. And they've also been able to get scale advantage. So that's why this story is very much a story about the biggest asset owners doing that. Um, the report segmented the asset owner community 
into various categories. And it was the group that was more than 200 billion AUM where this um, internal uh, movement has been so strong. But those of 25 billion AUM and below have stayed largely dependent on their outside asset managers. That type of relationship and that type of setup hasn't changed tremendously. What's been the reaction from the asset management side? How are they handling the shift on their end? It's been really interesting that the asset managers have been very nervous about this movement, I mean, for obvious reasons. And they have, um, I think, given these organizations um, at times a um, an element of they'll come round, they'll see the benefit of using us in future. I mean, that's been a bit of the narrative in the background because they felt that um, it's very difficult to build the culture and build the excellence that asset management organizations have managed to do over time. But I think the experiences of the leading asset owners have been good, some of them very good. Um, So some of the outstanding investment professionals have started to, to cluster in these asset owner organizations. Whereas previously, the asset owners had difficulty hiring the very best people. Um, In practice, uh, the world's leading asset owners have a very high caliber investment team. And so um, I think uh, that ship has sailed that this is not a trend that is going to turn around. We've noted before how COVID has accelerated trends that were in motion during the before times. And the survey touches on that point as well. But why don't I let Roger explain? So we're going to, I think, look back and say there was a pre-COVID experience. There was a post-COVID period as well. But actually, it's rather unique to be looking in on the actual COVID period and getting a data read. What I got from it was the reassurance that um, the industry was definitely moving on a bit, but it hadn't had to fundamentally change the way that it works. What reports like this do is produce a a little bit more texture for your understanding of the current dynamics. And that is really, I think, an important um, feature that can come through and it helps all, all of us do something that I think we want to do here, which is basically see around corners into the future, uh, because investment actually to be successful is all about anticipating um, dimensions of change in an uncertain world. That's all for today. Our thanks to Bear and Roger and to all of you for listening. For more details about how asset owners are moving forward, you can access the full survey report at MSCI.com. Next up on Perspectives, inclusion, diversity, and equity in financial services. How far have we come and how much more work is there to do? We'll speak with those who work at asset managers, asset owners, and right here at MSCI. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.